point of stability for all of us is Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. If all you have is Christ, then you have more than enough. Amen. Uh, coming up 20 years ago, August the 18th, I preached my first message. Jesus is more than enough. And He still is. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Revelation chapter number 19. Revelation chapter number 19. And look with me at verse number 11. Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 11. And I want to speak to you this morning on this topic, the return of the King. The return of the King. I want us to be reminded that Jesus is coming again. Amen. When we look at the headlines, when we see all of the world trauma that's going on in our world today, I want to remind you that it's all coming to a point. It's all coming to a place of the return of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, look at verse number 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one, no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the enemies of, excuse me, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in heaven with a loud voice and he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the and the, uh, the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the back of the horse and all the birds were engorged with their flesh. And I say amen to the reading of God's word. Christian apologist Dr. Oz Guinness had spoken on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he used the following illustration to tell how he knew that the second coming of the Lord was near. Here's what he said. That evening before he had this, uh, had this, uh, uh, this uh, speaking engagement, he had gone out to see a, a symphony performance of Handel's 
a, a, a long composition called the Messiah. We would know that hallelujah chorus from that Messiah. Well, he had just come from that the night before and thoroughly enjoyed the performance. Alluding to that performance uh, the previous evening, he said this. Now, if, if, as I was watching, if a man had asked me after the uh, performance had been going on for a couple of hours how long I thought it would continue, I would have answered about five minutes. The man might have asked, how can this be? It is in full swing and has been going on for two hours and I see no reason why it could, could not continue two hours longer. How do you know that it will be over in five minutes? Then Dr. Guinness said, I should have answered him because I have the score. Don't you remember that beautiful solo? And the man would have said yes. And that chorus, yes. And then I should have said to him, and I know it will soon be over because I have the score. They are singing the final chorus. He then said to the audience, it is a wonderful thing to have the score so you may follow events that lead to the finale. Well, he had the score. That's the musical composition. That's all the pages with all the notes. And if he saw the score, if he saw all the notes on the page, then he could know that he was close to the end. Thank God we have the score. We have all that is given to us to know when the end is coming. What he is telling us is that when it comes to the grand finale of Messiah's story, we have the score. When one studies the book of Revelation, they can easily see that God is laying out a roadmap to the consummation of all things. And might I say, can't we see day by day how that the world is on a bobslide toward an encounter of apocalyptic proportions and eternal significance, an encounter with Jesus Christ. When we come to Revelation 19, we come to the high watermark of all prophecy. If you look at the Old Testament and you look at those minor prophets and major prophets, they are all pointing to the day of the Lord, that day of God's ultimate judgment. That's what we find in Revelation chapter 19. It is the thundering crescendo of all of holy writ. It is the return of King Jesus. I declare without hesitation, without qualification, without apprehension, that Jesus is coming again. One of my favorite preachers, Dr. James Crumpton, he preached a message on the return of Jesus Christ from the words Jesus gave in John 14, 3, in which he told his disciples, I will come again. And I love what Dr. Crumpton said. I've almost got it memorized, but I won't, I won't recite it because I'm afraid I'll mess it up. But here's what he said. The philosophers can mess around in their mud and advance what theories they will. We still have the promise, I will come again. The scientists can analyze it, pour it into all the test tubes they want to, and we still have the promise, I will come again. Students of language can say anything they want to about the etymology of these four little words, but thank God we still have them, I will come again. The infidels and infahels and liberals can make all the fun they want to, 
to and deny as long as they want to that Jesus is coming again. But praise God, we still have the promise, I will come again. Jesus promises that He is coming again. And I want to look at that coming. I want to take your eyes and point you to that day and give you hope. Today, I want to do my best to shed light on this most momentous event in Scripture. And I promise you, I will fall flat on my face by the time we end this message. I will not be able to convey the grandeur, the splendor, the absolute awe of this passage. But yet, if I simply go around it and pick up the pebbles of beauty on the surface, they are glorious wonders to Behold, every one of us in this room today can grasp the intense magnitude of the return of Jesus Christ by looking at four aspects of that return found in this text. So I'm going to take this text and just look at four aspects of the return of Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, I want you to imagine the convergence of this moment. When I talk about the convergence, I'm talking about all the prerequisites that bring us to Revelation 19. As you go through the book of Revelation, you will notice that we have brought to, we're brought to this point, this very point again and again. There are different viewpoints and different interpretations of the book of Revelation, but it is my understanding that throughout the previous chapters, we have come to this moment again and again. I believe we see this moment in chapter 6 where men cried for rocks to fall on them and shield them from the face of the Lamb. I believe we see it in chapter 11 when it is displayed the angelic proclamation that rings out. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and forever. I believe we see it in chapter number 14 when the great winepress of the wrath of God is trodden underfoot. From slightly different angles in these previous chapters, we have been brought to the brink of this moment that takes place in chapter number 19. But in this text, it marks the convergence of all the horrific scenes of judgment throughout the book of Revelation. I'm sure you as well as me have read through the book of Revelation. We have sometimes scratched our head. We have sometimes been taken aback and kept awake, kept awake at night by its scenes of horror and the and the uh, the, the, the 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 fantastic uh, graphic views of what the world will be like in that last day, with the cracking of every seal, the blast of every trumpet, the dumping of every bowl. The earth has experienced an ever heightening anguish and torment. Ecological disasters have deformed the face of the earth with violent earthquakes. The seas and its waters have been contaminated with putrid blood. The once tranquil night skies have turned into terrifying scenes of catastrophic calamity. Sickness and disease along with hideous creatures that defy imagination have plagued the earth. And yet the sinfulness and the rebellion of mankind only soars to new heights 
with every chapter of depravity. The rage of the beast, once thought to be the hope of the world, has become the world's nightmare. The economic powerhouse of Babylon is in shambles. The world religion of the false prophet has blinded the masses into devotion to the beast. The collective effect of all of these events... All that has taken place in the book of Revelation, all of history past, has brought together the armies of the world in the Middle Eastern battlefield of Megiddo. Revelation 16.6, notice this, And they assembled them at the place in the Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Regardless of the debate about what is taking place in this valley, whether the armies of the world have surrounded the last remnant of the Jewish people or the last remnant of the believing church or a little bit of both. There's different interpretations to the book of Revelation that we can talk about and argue about. Nevertheless, what is taking place is that God is taking the nations of the world as if they are oxen with rings in their noses and bringing them to what Napoleon called the perfect battlefield. A strip of land 200 miles long and 100 miles wide for the battle of Armageddon. This scene into which this most incredible event of history takes place, the visible bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth. All the things that have taken place have brought us to this battlefield, to this moment when Jesus comes back. Imagine the convergence of this moment. Now I want you to envision the climax of this moment. You know, it's hard to put into words what takes place in these verses. Go back with me in verse John, uh, verse, uh, verse number 11 in chapter 19. John says, I saw heaven opened. I am reminded of that hymn by Horatius Spafford whose final verse says, And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. When the sky opens in chapter number 19 and John casts his gaze into the heavens, he sees, first of all, a white horse. A white horse was traditionally the horse of the victorious Roman general who rode in the triumphal procession through the streets of Rome after conquering some foreign country. The first time Jesus came to Jerusalem, He was riding a donkey, lowly, humble servant of men. But when He returns, He shall come in power and might riding on a triumphant stallion. John describes the one on the horse riding the white horse that appears in the sky, he immediately, look at what he says, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. He describes the rider of this horse by the qualifiers faithful and true. He is faithful. He never changes. He remains constant. We, like shifting sands, blow back and forth and the world changes constantly. But Jesus remains the same. I am reminded of the Hebrew author who said, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same yesterday, looking back through recorded history and beyond to eternity past 
as He is the Ancient of Days. He is the same today through all the periods and epochs of time. He is the constant presence among the nations. He is the same forever looking forward to eternity to come. He is unwavering, unchanging through all of time. As Robert Hawker, the author, said, He is the same in His love, the same in His efficacy of His redemption, the same in His blood to cleanse, His righteousness to justify, His fullness to supply grace, here and glory hereafter. Jesus is eternally faithful. He stays the same. And He's faithful to His promises. Faithfulness means you keep your promises. Jesus said in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and, and take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Jesus here in Revelation 19 is fulfilling the promise that He made thousands of years ago to a handful of disciples in an upper room. I will come again. He is also the embodiment of truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. He is impeccable. His impeccable reliability is, is, is a, sure, a sure foundation in the shifting sands of all the world around us. You and I can have full assurance that every promise He ever made, and He will keep, and every word that He said will come to pass. He is faithful and He is true. Next we see the next phrase tells us that He uh, tells us His intent. Notice, He said, in righteousness He judges and makes war. His intent in His arrival is to make war and to judge. Long has Satan had his way. Long has, he had, has the curse prevailed and evil gone unreckoned. It, need, it, ends on, it all ends on this day. The flash of fire in his eyes sees through the facades and lies and deceptions of the hearts of men. His, the eyes that looked up with compassion upon lepers and publicans and drunkards and prostitutes will then gaze for the gaze upon in wrath and judgment upon the sinful men and the hordes of hell on this planet. Our text says that he is wearing many diadems. Did you catch that? On his head were many diadems. That word it could easily be translated crowns. Things that sit upon the head. Now this word diadem in the Greek is very different than another word that is often identified as a crown called a Stephanos. A Stephanos is a crown that is awarded by winning a race. Uh, Paul often ta talked about running a race and gaining a crown at the finish of that race. That's the kind of crown he's talking about. It's the crown that would be given uh, for the accomplishment of a victory, uh, of, a, of, of, of a place of exceeding others. But Jesus is crowned with a completely different word. It is a word from which we get our word uh, uh, that's translated here in our text, a diadem. It is a crown, not of competitive victory, but one of royal designation. It's not something that you win by being the fastest or the strongest or, the, or, the, or any other competitive type thing. It is one of heritage. He is the root of David, the rightful heir 
of the kingdoms of this world. He is the worthy one, entitled, like in chapter number, uh, I think it's number three, he's entitled to take the book and to break the seals, the title deed of all the earth. He's the one that owns it all. But at the same time, these many crowns can include the the, 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 the Stephanos, because he is the victor over all. Those whose bone, those uh, he victors over and above all the kings whose bones lay cold and dusty in the caverns of the earth. There is no king to compare to this King Jesus. There is no royalty to match his majesty. Every regal kingly trait found in the hearts of earthly monarchs is not only found in him. 10,000 times over, but is those very traits that he himself has authored upon the hearts of men. He has a name that no one knows. Uh, the, the, uh, the Apostle John, as he continues to write, talks about a name that no one knows but himself. This name that no one knows. It, it, he reveals in, in time and history, when he came, he revealed himself as Jesus. He revealed himself to the sons of men as Yeshua. And they have taken that name and they have reviled it. They have blasphemed it. But when he comes again, he will come with a name that no man can misuse. No man can blaspheme. No man can insult. There's a, there is an otherworldliness about him. A mystery of his identity. You know what? I think that's the theme of eternity. I think in eternity we are going to learn more and more about this unnamed, this person that has a name which no man knows. We may identify him as Jesus Christ or, or the multitude of names associated with him, but it is about his person that will span all of eternity for we will know more and more about his unending character of who he is. Notice that it talks about his robe is dipped in blood. In verse number 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. This description harkens back to the imagery of Revelation 14 where it's talking about the winepress. Listen closely. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the, horse's by, uh, as the horse's bridle. In the Bible times, when grapes were harvested, they would be put into a large vat, and people would go in, and, and, and they would clean, hopefully they cleaned their feet. Uh, it's always kind of bugged me about how they used to do that, but hopefully they cleaned their feet, and then they go into this vat, and they would stomp on these grapes and crush them, and, and all of that grape juice would go down and flow to a spigot at the bottom, and they would collect that juice, that wine, that fell there, that was the custom. Of course, in doing so, if anyone had any garments on, it would be splashed on by that, uh, by that uh, uh, grape juice and splashed on and stained. That is what is being pictured here. But instead of a wine press, this is a battlefield. Jesus is victor over the enemies of God. In anger and fury, He will trample down the enemies of God's people. In the valley of Megiddo, this wine press is the wine press of the enemies of God. This blood is the blood of the armies of the earth. When Jesus came the first time, 
He did so to give His blood for His enemies. But when He comes again, He will come and take the blood of His enemies to stamp out the winepress of the wrath of God. And He will do this, notice this, He will do this by the word of His mouth. Notice what it says. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. Here we find that this, this instrument, it's not like Jesus is going to jump down in the fray and He's going to pull out a sword and start fighting and, and He's going to exert any strength to defeat His enemies. No, no, no. Before His feet ever touch the ground, He will open His mouth and destroy the armies of the world. Their blood will flow to the horse's bridle. Jesus Christ is the very powerful Word of God. In, a, in John chapter 1 verse 1, John eloquently put, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As a matter of fact, all of the Word of God is about Jesus. It's about Him. In Genesis, He's the promised seed. In Exodus, He's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, He's the scapegoat. In Numbers, He's the brazen serpent lifted on a pole. In Deuteronomy, He's the lawgiver. In Joshua, He's the prophet, the priest, the king. In Judges, He is the righteous judge. In Ruth, He's the kinsman redeemer. In, 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 in I skipped some right here. Let me get back. I won't miss this. In Psalms, He is the song of the ages. In Proverbs, He's the wisdom of God. In Isaiah, He's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In Daniel, He's the stone cut without hands and the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Matthew, He's the King of Kings. In Mark, He's the suffering servant. In Luke, He's the Son of Man. In John, He's the Son of God. In Acts, He's the mighty power of the church. In Romans, He's the dynamite of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians, in the Thessalonian letters, He is the coming one. In Timothy, He's the great appearing God. In Titus, He is the blessed hope. In Hebrews, He's the best of all. In Peter's epistle, He is the rock in our salvation. In Jude, He's the one that's able to keep us from falling. And in Revelation, He is the King of kings who is coming in power and glory on a white horse of victory. I know I skipped through a few, but He is the whole book. Every bit is about Him. Everything points to the coming of Jesus. Look with me at verse number 15. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. The Word of God is quick and powerful. It is alive and powerful. And it is the weapon that will take down the armies of the world. Then we see yet another name. Notice in verse number 16, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That means he is the greatest in rank, in position, and importance. Jesus Christ is the King of heaven, the King of glory, and the King of kings. By His divine name, His peerless nature, His royal nobility, He exceeds all the self-appointed monarchs of Adam's fallen race. His sovereign greatness to govern, His prerogative to bless, His preeminence to rule and reign outshine any gilded throne made by the hands of mortal men. Charles Rose wrote this, 
The blaze of the king's brilliance is blinding. The orbit of his office is overwhelming. The arch of his authority is astounding. So wholly superior in his in personality, he is the king kindly disposed toward his people, a sovereign savior, majestic in mercy, splendor in sympathy, perfect in pity, and withal most bountiful in blessing. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He is Jesus Christ. Imagine the convergence of the moment, envision the climax, the return when Jesus appears and conquers the armies of this world. Notice also, identify the company of this moment. Look with me at verse number 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, who is this mighty army? There's been suggestions and speculation as to who these people are. Some believe that these are the heavenly hosts of heaven, the angels of heaven. In, in verse 10, we are reminded, go look, look back with me at verse number 10. It's John said, then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. John saw one of these angels and he fell down immediately to worship that angel. And that angel said, no, I'm your fellow servant. I, I, I'm with you, but I'm not God. You worship God. That is what made some believe that this army of heaven might be. It might be those angelic hosts. You know, it might seem fitting that God would let these angels in on this battle. You know, they had to... Uh, they, uh, they had to... Uh, stand by and watch as all the hordes of hell and the enemies of God trampled this globe. They had their way to, and should be, uh, they had their way over this world. In the garden, Jesus told Peter that a heavenly host was at his command. At any moment, he could summon them and set them free. Can you imagine how these angels must have tensed up as they laid hands and on Jesus in that garden of Gethsemane? Jesus only allowed them to shove the guard, shove one shove in the garden, and that shove laid down five, 600 men. And they had to stand by. These angels stood by as the tortures of Calvary took place. And now could be this is their moment. This is their moment in which God would let them take out uh, all of that aggression against those enemies of God on the battlefield of Megiddo. But I believe the context lends itself to believe that these are the saints of God. The born again, blood bought bride of Christ. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice in that same chapter, 19, 6 through 8. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. For the marriage supper, uh, for, the, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Notice this. And it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. When we look at these verses, we find a haunting similarity to these armies that come with Jesus Christ. As He brings through, 
as he pierces through that eastern sky. Picture it. Those pitiful ones who Satan toyed with like a cat plays with a mouse for all those years. Those ones who cried out to the cross for saving and secured their souls. Those who were weak and pathetic. No match for the forces of darkness and sin. Those children of God over which Satan and his hordes watched with glee as death gripped their mortal bodies. Yes, those are now the army of God. A fierce army. A mighty army riding on white horses of victory tucked in the train of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I know I don't look like much right now but I'm no match for temptations and the snares of the gods of this world but in that day I'm in that number when the saints come marching in. When Jesus splits the eastern sky, I'm riding with King Jesus, glory to God, and I'll be in that company with King Jesus on that day. And the only thing, I, I won't have to brandish my sword because by the time I get there, Jesus, I already have him knocked out. I just get to bask in the victory. Amen. With King with King Jesus, I won't even have to pull out my sword. Amen. But I'm in that army. I'm with that group. Imagine the convergence of the moment history bringing us to this battlefield. Envision the climax. Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, splitting the eastern sky and coming to this earth. The identity of the company. I believe it be the saints of God riding white horses on clean, in clean, white, pure robes. Last of all, imagine the casualties of this moment. We read 17 through 21, I will not belabor the point, but it is a horrifying scene. In this moment, the blood will flow to the horse's bridle. Uh, you say, Brother Ronnie, is that, is that really something that can take place here in our very area? The Chickamauga battlefield. And I believe 1863, the battlefield of Chickamauga, they said that there were so many soldiers that had died and their blood shed on that battlefield that those little creeks and ravines through that battlefield, they were red with blood because so many people had been killed. You imagine if all the armies of the world and all the billions of people are gathered around in that little place called Armageddon and when that word goes out, I believe it could be at the horse's bridle. That many millions upon millions of inhabitants of this earth will be cut through by the Word of God. The call for the fowls of the air to come and feed off the flesh is an indication, has been in Old Testament times, of the curse and the judgment of God. These destroyed bodies that comprise the dam, those that trample the name and the person of Christ underfoot, will be crushed under the weight of the wrath of God, the beast and the false prophet whose minds were filled with the delusion of replacing him who sits on the throne are handled like a couple of rag dolls and thrown into the eternal torments of hell that are burning like brimstone and sulfur. The rest will meet their maker at the great white throne judgment that lies just ahead in the book of Revelation. You have this day. Listen, this is all prophecy. You know what prophecy means? It ain't happened yet. It's on its way, but it ain't happened yet. 
You have every opportunity to hear the Word of God today, to be cut to the heart and, to, and, and, and in the heart and spirit today and, be, and join the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords through repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't have to be in this crowd in this valley that gives their blood and dies by the sword, by the Word of God. You can come to Jesus Christ today and be a part of that glad throng that is coming with Him in power and in glory. To close, American restaurateur Jason Wallen has a large collection of memorabilia connected with the Duke and the Duchess of Windsor. Now you may be saying, well, who in the world is that? Well, the Duke of Windsor would have been the king of England, but he gave it up to marry the Duchess. Plans had already been made for his coronation. They'd already ordered the expensive and insignificant laid uh, Plates and cups and dishes all ready for the, for, the, uh, for the coronation of this new king to come. Everything was made in place, but the coronation never happened. In a different sense, Jesus never had His coronation witnessed by the eyes of men when He walked upon this earth. Instead of being crowned king, he was crowned with thorns and nailed to a cross. But the day of King Jesus and his return to this earth once more will not be a coronation day. That happened in the heights of heaven when Jesus ascended to the Father. Jesus was crowned then before our Heavenly Father, before the eyes of all the angelic hosts. But when Jesus comes again, it won't be a coronation day. It'll be a revelation day. A day in which the entire world will see Jesus Christ for who He truly is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That leads me to my last thought. Listen closely. In summary, Jesus is coming again. The question is, on that day, Will you be found in the valley of blood or in the clouds robed in white? Where are you going to be in that day? Where will you be when Jesus returns? Listen, you may think and wonder sometimes, you know, the world is just getting crazier and crazier, more so than we ever thought it would be. I, I imagine... I imagine that if we were to resurrect our great-great-grandparents and our great-great-grandparents, if, if they knew the Lord and we could time machine them here now and spend a few days taking in what we take in on a daily basis as far as news and happenings in the world, they would be frantic in their expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. They would look around with dazed apprehension, or not, not dazed apprehension, but a dazed, uh, incredible view that Jesus is about to split the eastern sky. Listen, Jesus is coming again, and I know sometimes we live in a world, we're so climatized that we wonder, 
Are we fools for thinking this? Are we fools for thinking that Jesus is coming again? Listen. When you ride with that number, it says in the book, faithful and true. I believe these coming with Him are the saints of God. If not with Him there, we'll be with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is absolutely clear. In this book, His promise is given. His name is faithful and true. It will come to pass. When you're in that number, whether at the marriage, marriage supper of the Lamb or in this return of Jesus Christ white, riding a white stallion in returning with Him, you will surely think to yourself, I was a fool ever to doubt Him. I was a fool to doubt Jesus. He is coming again. Crown Him now. Crown Him now. Don't wait till then uh, to, to crown Him. Crown Him today. Give Him your life. Give Him your heart. Place Him at the centerpiece of your life. It reminds me of the hymn which sings, Look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. From the fight return victorious. Every knee to Him shall bow. Crown Him. Crown Him. Crown Him. Crown Him. Crown becomes the victor's bow. Crown King Jesus. The return of King Jesus. I tell you the truth. Church, lift up your heads. We may be small in number, but we're going to be in a grand party. We're going to be with a grand army one day when we come back with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and He deals justly and righteously with this world. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed and every eye closed. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, my call to you is the call of the apostles and the saints and all of the church throughout all of the ages. Repent! Come to Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins. Was buried. Raised again on the third day. Ever settling His position as God's Savior. You come. Come to Jesus know Him as your Savior. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love You. I thank You for this vision. May our hearts swell with encouragement and anticipation. Oh God, I pray that You would lift up our hearts, strengthen us, for that day is coming soon. Oh God, I pray You would gather Your people. Even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come get us, Lord Jesus. Take us up into Your presence. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Our hymn today is, It is well with my soul. Because I want to get to the third verse. We're going to sing all three this morning. The third verse is what I'm aiming for. Let's sing this song. It is well with your soul. Are these frightening, are these frightening scenes causing your soul to have problems? Listen, it can be well today. It can be well. You come to church.